welcome to the Paula Peralta Show. I'm your host, Paula Peralta. And as you know, I've been bringing all my friends together to have some really cool conversations about basically everything because it's my show, so I can talk about whatever I want. Um, today, I'm here with one of the people that has just been in my life for a long time. We've seen some shit together. And... Um, there's like that cool element of it, but the other reason I'm really excited for our conversation is because she's also probably one of the smartest people I know. And so the conversation's all been, been really cool. I've learned a lot from her and um, about life, about random bits of information, and then also just about like friendship. So um, we're going to dig in. I don't know where we're going to go. We kind of have an idea, but um, please Welcome to the Paula Peralta Show, Renee Miller. Hello, oh, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Hi, friends. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for being here. Mm. Okay, so a um, little bit of a backstory. I know, like we've we've been friends for like almost 15 years. Yeah, a long time. I think you just were finishing law school. I had just finished hair school. We we're like venturing out into the world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like talk to me a little bit. Let's start off. And we'll go back, I'm sure. But, like, let's talk about, like, your professional journey and, oh. like, how you've kind of navigated up to this point. <laughs> I know. it's uh, Okay, it's so my profession. Yeah, I know, right? Just a little question. Easy breezy. So I feel like um, when I was in college, there was a woman who was, like, you know, the dean of students at my college. And she said something, you know, casually that I think like really resonated with me, which was that like most women, your careers are never one straight line. You have this, like you take a very convoluted career path and like that is true. And not that like, I mean, it it wouldnn't be Renee if I didn't just like fully (laughs) lean right into diversity. So like, this is a white woman explaining that like women take convoluted career paths because people doubt them, Mm. particularly their male bosses doubt them. And so they have to switch tacks or switch jobs because of doubt. Now layer on top of that, every other marginalized identity I have very visible ones and the not visible ones. Right. And you will understand why I have such a like convoluted career path, which was I um, decided I wanted to be an attorney because my like every immigrant family, you had two options. You were going to be a doctor or you were going to be a lawyer or you're going to shut up and be a doctor. So like <laughs> I decided to be a lawyer. Um, my grandparents were obsessed, obsessed. Like they were immigrants to this country. They were new to the country and they watched the people's court with Judge Wapner was like their understanding of what uh, 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 America was this like litigious, <laughs> yeah. right. petty, um, like not wrong. Everyone. Not wrong, by the way. Correct, right? <laughs> Accurate. I am both litigious and petty. Get at me. Um, but I think that like they were obsessed with the people's court, and I just thought I want them to be as obsessed with me. They were my mm. daycare. My mother went to work, and my grandparents took care of me. And I was like, I just thought I just want them to think that I'm as interesting as this show. And on the show, there was a black woman on the show, and I just thought, oh. She's an attorney. She looks like me. I'll do what she does. Boom. Close the book. Never thought about it again. Then uh, I will say this one time and everybody who ever hears it will be like, oh, yeah. So from like 1982 to about 1999, 
most of the more like successful black women characters on TV were lawyers. Oh, yeah. So like Joan Clayton played by Tracy Ellis Ross, Maxine Shaw, uh, Claire Huxtable. The list goes on. There just were like a t- like over representation of black women as attorneys. And so I saw this attorney who was a black woman on the People's Court with Judge Wapner. And then I saw all these attorneys on my like regular 8 p.m. sitcoms every single day growing up. And so I just thought, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll be a black woman who's an attorney. Obvious. Bam. Boom. It wasn't until I was 17 that I realized People's Court doesn't have attorneys. That lady was a stenographer. <laughs> <laughs> but to my five-year-old brain, there are only two jobs in a, a courtroom. Yeah. Be a judge or be a lawyer. So bam, done. So that was how I decided to be a lawyer. Thank you. Complicated decision-making. Oh, um, my gosh. That's amazing. And it just sort of stuck, right? This like... Being the, a child of immigrants, this need to understand the country, understand our legal system in a way that helped my family, mm. who was navigating this country for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old navigating it with them and alongside them and needing to be a support to that, needing to be a resource to that. And so understanding my rights was like really significant and really mm. important. And that drove me to be in law school. Now... The actual work of being a lawyer on like any random given Tuesday afternoon, trash, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Went into entertainment law, was working in entertainment law, and truly like the amount of people who asked me who my boyfriend was in the room instead of asking me what I did for a living mm-hmm. was disgusting. Mm-hmm. And so I was just was like, I got to get out. Like I was at a premiere where like I had negotiated every one of the actors, uh, contracts. Mm -hmm. And instead, like their publicists, producers, people just kept walking up to me being like, are you here? Whose date are you? I'm not anyone's date. I'm the reason this movie got made. What are you saying? Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, anyway, it was just like, it was like really gross. I didn't enjoy it. And again, because people doubted me for all of the reasons, I took a turn. I took a divot and I um, started working on social impact campaigns. Mm-hmm. So like by virtue of being a millennial, I like did a lot of the things first. So like I had like a really pop in, like back when we did, when Facebook had like, what was it? Pages mm-hmm. where you could like blog. I had a pop in Facebook pages and I had a pop in blog spot. Then I had a pop in podcast, but a lot of it is just by virtue of being first, by virtue of like having an opinion about the world and just like putting it out there consistently. Look, was the opinion great? Some of it was trash. Some of it I disagree with now, right? I'm a whole 40 years old. I don't agree with some of the things I said before, but like, I think just by virtue of putting things out there consistently, I had a lot of um, bites and a lot of traction. And from that, when you go to law school, you meet two types of kids. You meet the big law firm kids and you meet the community organizers. Mm. And so all the kids who became like successful community organizers, um, would hit me up. Like, how did you get like this many clicks onto your podcast? How did you get this many people to read your blog? We want folks to sign this petition. It's not the same thing, but can you help me figure that out? What I didn't know is that that in and of itself was a job, Mm -hmm. right? I was just doing a nice thing out of the kindness of my heart, like telling them, here's how you could get people to potentially sign that petition Mm -hmm. on Facebook. Here's how you can use Instagram to drive people to show up to an event Mm -hmm. live, right? Like just sort of, I didn't realize that was a whole job. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until um, I sort of landed backwards in a strategy opportunity uh, that I understood like, oh, I was doing something that was like, I could have been being paid six mm. figures to do mm. and I had no idea. And so I just continued to build my career that way. I started out in social impact and then I moved into traditional agency life. Mm-hmm. And then I worked 
as a traditional strategist in advertising um, and at my last agency sort of worked my way up. I was a senior strategist and associate director. And then um, George Floyd was murdered. Mm -hmm. And like every black woman in marketing that any of us know, I was asked to run a DEI committee. Not just in marketing, by the way. Uh, Right. Oh, listen, (laughs) you better say it. Um, I was asked to run a DEI committee and I said no. And then they asked me again and I said no, because I was just a trap that like women of color get pulled into for free. They do a very important and a very nice thing for a company for free. And I was uninterested in that. And so I said that and my, the company I was working for said, we hear you, we'll pay you, run the committee. So I said, all right. Cause I knew, I just knew like coming behind me after running this committee is going to be the next woman of color and the next woman of color and next woman of color. It's always going to be us. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I got all those women paid, including myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to do a free thing for the company. And in doing that, I ended up legitimately building out the company's entire DEI structure, their entire framework and like the approach to DEI. And then I also at the same time was working as a strategist, as mm-hmm. a lead strategist across all of these like consumer packaged goods brand is how you, uh, brands is how you would professionally refer to it. But like, I just mean like if you stood in the healthcare aisle at a Target, by the end of my uh, strategy time at this agency, I was the lead strategist for 13 of the brands that you absolutely know standing in the healthcare aisle, right? So like, I think it sort of just slowly built itself. And in doing that, I come from a very specific perspective. I live in this world as a woman. I live in this world as a black woman. I live in this world as a queer woman. Mm -hmm. I live in this world as a formerly Christian woman. There are all of these identities that I have, first-generation American. And so often, particularly in the healthcare aisle, we can talk Mm -hmm. about black people in healthcare and like the inherent mistrust and all these other things. We are overlooked. Our stories, immigrant stories are overlooked in the healthcare aisle. Oddly enough, women's stories are overlooked in the healthcare aisle. You know what they do in healthcare? They make it pink. Mm-hmm. That's how they tell a women's story. Yeah. Make it pink and charge them a dollar and fifty extra. So, like, I think there's just um, there was a lot of room to tell really important, really like transformative and like stories that just make you want to buy a product. Yeah. You want to look into it. And by virtue of just like bringing that, bringing my own lived experience to the table, we were legitimately transforming some of these healthcare brands. Like overnight, they had like. Uh, women's strategies that they didn't have before. Overnight, they had Black American strategies they didn't have before. And that was just by virtue of me bringing that like authentic story to the table for those brands, which then got me promoted to the chief diversity officer. And then for the past two years, I've been the chief diversity officer at this agency. Yeah. Um. Well, get it, girl. Get it, girl. Get it, girl. So when I say like a very convoluted career path, yeah. I mean it. But like so many women I know have exactly this like yeah. weird convoluted story to where they are now. Well, I think what's cool about that is like for me, it's interesting because from my perspective, like, no, of course you would have all of those roles and responsibilities because you're you. Like mm-hmm. you're brilliant and you're you're like smart and funny and like intuitive. And there's all of these things that I'm like, well, yeah, that role totally makes sense. And that role totally makes sense. And that role totally makes sense. And so it's it's interesting to look over like the, your entire career and be like, yeah, like, I'm just, you know. But, but then, you're, but then you're spitting these statistics and I'm like, damn, that is like a thing. 
For sure. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, that's cool. Um, okay. So I love, obviously I learned so much from you about like the government and like <laughs> DEI and like all this stuff. But I, okay. I actually, I'm going to bring up a, a conversation that I think a lot of people are not having right now, but like with this whole conversation on DEI and we are now hearing like DEIB mm-hmm. um, and I feel like people are kind of like tired of hearing about DEIB. Like they don't want to talk about it. They like, they don't even really want to acknowledge it exists. They just want you to like put a bandaid on it. Yeah. It's a thing. Like I, I'm, I'm fully it. aware of it. And so I'm just like, what do you like, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. You know what I always have to say when people say like, I feel like everyone's tired of DEI. Nobody's tired of DEI. We haven't even started to talk about DEI yet. It's not that they're tired of it. It's that everybody's afraid of it. Mm. They're afraid of it. Because if you acknowledge that there's a problem, you have to then ask the very next question. Where'd the problem come from? Mm -hmm. Are you the problem? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to ask that question because nobody wants to answer that question. Because what do you do when you realize you're the problem? Mm. All of a sudden you have to change something. And like, what never gets acknowledged, what never gets talked about when we talk about DE&I at work, like the, the idea of inclusion and belonging at work, what never gets talked about is like the fact that like if we don't make it an actual part of the company, the responsibility falls on the people who are actually actively being excluded. Mm-hmm. So for as long as we don't talk about DE&I, yeah. like – it is only marginalized people who are worried about DEI. Does that make sense? Yeah, if, totally. But the minute you make it part of the structure of your company, all of a sudden the burden is off of the victims mm-hmm. and the burden gets placed in the right place. And it's not just on the white employees. That's not where burden gets placed. And that's not where burden should be. Burden should be on the company to be an inclusive place where people can feel like they belong. Mm-hmm. And that is like, that's a thing that companies can do, that companies can just zoom out to 10,000 feet and actually put in place frameworks that make people feel like mm-hmm. they can show up fully. Yeah. I can share my ideas. I can share my opinion. I can say to this healthcare brand that it's in every hospital in America, you have the chops to do more and you're not. So here's what we think you should do. Um, okay. So for those of you that don't know, I, I did mention this at the beginning, like Renee and I, we've been friends for like 15 years. Like I said, we both came out of school. I literally slept like we were roommates. I, when I first moved to LA, I slept in Renee's bed. Like we just like, she was, she's been my ride or die for all these years. So like, I'm going to ask some questions that I'm like actually comfortable having this conversation because I love you and I can, and I know that like there's mutual respect here, but like so one of the things that I'm seeing a lot to your point about like people don't want to admit that there's a there's a need for it because then they have to admit that there's a problem, which then also has to they have to look at maybe that they have privilege that other people may not have. But my thing is like I feel like so often people are like, oh, well, I'm not racist. So like we don't necessarily need like DEI or like and yeah. I notice you're specifically excluding the B. So I want to come back to that. Mm-hmm. But like so like what how do you even navigate that conversation? Yeah. 
Um, you don't have to be racist in order to never feel included. Like race doesn't have to be it. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes because I am the person that people are having yeah. that conversation with, yep. they all they see is my race in that moment. Totally. And they're like, well, I'm not racist. I'm not asking you about race. Mm-hmm. I'm literally not talking about race. Marginalization happens to women, happens to gay people, happens to non-binary. Like it happens to many immigrants, yep. non-English speakers, like there are many ways in which people become marginalized, particularly in the professional workspace. You spend eight to 12 hours a day with your coworkers. Mm-hmm. You don't spend eight to 12 hours a day with your spouse. Mm-hmm. You don't spend eight to 12 hours a day with your kids. Mm-hmm. Your manager has more impact on your mental health than your spouse or your children or the rest of your family do. Your manager does. So for as long as companies pretend not to know that fact, they can pretend that diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging don't matter. But 12 hours a day, you have to be responsible for my feelings. Yeah. You have to be. You yeah. just, there's no way that we can just pretend it's not something that businesses need to be responsible for. And I love that because, so it's interesting. I have, I have that exact experience that like when I bring up something about inclusivity, people automatically go to race because I am a woman of color. Like, and I am often advocating for other women of color. Like, and it's, but it's not just that, but because of who, what, what people see in me, it becomes that. Mm -hmm. And I think I love that, that point you made that it's like, it's not about that because I will talk about like queer, trans, like gay, like whatever it is, like the whole LGBTQ, like I mean, like you said, able-bodied, like there are so many other facets of it. But again, like since, you know, George Floyd was murdered, it's it has strictly become a race conversation, which I'm not fully like it needs to be included in that conversation, but it needs to not be the only component of that conversation. And and I, I think you make such a Amazing point. I'm so happy to hear you say that because it's like, what the, like, I'm sure you blew so many people's minds even just with that response. I mean, look, we got to start with like the biggest problem, right? Yeah. It's, it's easy to understand why race becomes the whole conversation because it's the biggest problem. It's mm-hmm. the biggest harm in this country. And so it's easy to see why it becomes well, part of the conversation. Our, so facing that like, too. Black people are constantly being murdered. However, let's talk about like, so I work primarily in digital innovation. And so like digital innovation is accessibility. Accessibility drives digital innovation. Here's my example. When the iPhone came pre-programmed where when you got a text message, that light lit up. Mm -hmm. Do you know how long that's been in existence? Mm -mm. That's been in existence since they created like the, like Braille telephones since they created telephones for deaf folks where you can like read across because the phone would be ringing and they wouldn't know the phone was ringing in the Mm -hmm. house. So they connected it to a light. It's been around since the Mm sixties, but the minute we actually released it wide to everybody, everybody loved it. Everybody agree with it. You, I sit on the train in New York city in any, every morning, light, 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 light. Nobody has to be, it's not about whether or not you're deaf. That is just an innovation that is bomb for everyone. Mm -hmm. That's also true for like, uh, you know, the like 
limited mobility. So like mm-hmm. now on the iPhone or your iWatch, when you squeeze your wrist, it like take an EKG, 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 you can like flip your wrist a certain way to answer the phone. That has to do with people who have limited mobility. That's been around for a very long time. My point is when you take accessibility innovation and you release it to the masses and you don't just hold it as if, well, only people who aren't able-bodied really need this. That's mm-hmm. trash. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs innovation. Just because you thought of it specifically for one community doesn't mean it's not for everyone i have this thing that i always say which is that specificity is actually universality the more specific and clear you can get about who you're servicing who you're targeting who you want to help what community you're focused on in fact you will by being so specific be so much more relatable to Mm -hmm. everybody else Mm -hmm. and that's true for all digital digital innovation by Focusing on the community that you want to help. And when you release it wide to everyone, it actually just like makes everybody's lives better. It makes everybody's lives easier, but it also makes the whole world more accessible. Mm -hmm. Because before, if you were deaf and you had the light on your camera or on your phone for every time you got a text and every time your phone rang, you were disruptive. That was considered disruptive. Why was there a light? That's so rude. You'd be on the train. You could be in the... It didn't matter where you were. It would be considered rude. Okay. Well, now... Is that disruptive to you when the light goes off? Mm-hmm. No, in fact, you're understanding. It comes pre-programmed on the phone. Nobody's looking at deaf folks weird anymore. Mm-hmm. Nobody's being like, "What? why is his phone different? Mm-hmm. The world is just a more accepting place for that now. Mm-hmm. And has everything to do with just like literally releasing accessibility innovation to the entire world and not holding it back. Amazing. Brilliant. One of the million reasons I love you. Um, okay, so let's go back to the belonging thing because I saw mm-hmm. the finger quotes. I saw the finger quotes. I'll tell you why. Okay. I think that adding belonging is this very slippery slope of shifting responsibility and shifting what the actual harm is. So because, again, the very same people who don't want to acknowledge that there may be a DEI problem are really insistent that the B needs to be added. Because if the B is added, now DE&I can become not just about marginalized identities that have been historically excluded. Now it becomes about anybody's feelings about any experience. That's not the same. That's HR. Mm. that's not the same. And I think that that's the slippery slope. That's the problem. We are desperate not to look at the issue. We're desperate not to look at the harm. And so instead we want to flatten it and flatten it and flatten it. So it means nothing. It just applies to any and everything the same way that like we're flattening the word gaslighting to just mean disagreeing. Yeah. Oh, I'm being gaslit. No, I think you mean somebody's disagreeing with you. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as being gaslit, right? Or like we're flattening or attempting to flatten what the word woke means. Woke has nothing to do with, you know, uh, politics. It has nothing to do with progressive politics. Mm -hmm. Being woke has everything to do with the fact that we lived in a country that actively tried to keep us asleep. Mm -hmm. Don't notice all these Black people are being murdered. Mm -hmm. Don't notice that we're putting more and more police officers in your community. Don't come out to uh, city council meetings and don't notice that we're raising the subway fares. We're raising your rent by 7% every year. Stay asleep. And so those same people who the government and everybody was working to keep asleep started saying to each other, stay woke. 
Don't let them keep you asleep. So again, we're flattening in order to remove the teeth of things that are like really important to fixing harms that have happened in this country. Yeah, because it is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's the thing is like the bite of that Mm -hmm. is really uncomfortable. And I mean, lean in. (laughs) It's uncomfortable to fix. Imagine what it feels like to live through it. Thank you. (laughs) That's the pull quote. (laughs) Seriously, though. But it's it's true. And I think like, I don't know if you feel this way, but for me, it's like, I'm I'm so proud to be a woman of color like and to I mean and it has been a, a it has been a story journey to get to that point where you, I can even say something like that but it's like you know towing this line of like you know multiracial and like black latina like what does that look like how my the way I was raised in like a super white community like so <clears throat> and super white is not just a no euphemism. that's like that's legitimate <laughs> yeah. look it up in the dictionary yeah. super white where you grew up um but like that I think I am while I am so proud of who I am and all all in all the facets of me, it's annoying and exhausting to just be marginalized constantly. And I think that's like it's 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 like the understatement of the century. But I exactly what you just said. It's like we there's so much more. And I know this. I could speak for both of us. Like there's so much more that we could be creating if we didn't have to be like headlining these conversations. If my entire, like, if 50% of my work time wasn't dedicated to eradicating the doubt other people have in me based on stereotypes they've experienced or not experienced, but only seen, and yet that is affecting my money. It is affecting my promotion. It is affecting my title, my ability to be good at my job. It's literally actively affecting my life. But to that, everybody, it is a thought experiment to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so when you say it is annoying and exhausting, like it is because I'm living it and then having to narrate the harm I'm literally living in to the people I'm living through it with. Again, eight to 12 hours of my day is spent with these people. I then have to turn around and say to my manager, this is what it was like in this project meeting. And it was a real push pull in order to get myself heard. And here's what I was trying to say. And like, I got shouted down by this person, this person, and this person, because they couldn't see this perspective. Can you help me figure out how to give them this perspective? How do I put this perspective forward that makes it digestible now? How many managers do you think are capable of helping me put forward a perspective that is digestible when that perspective is based in marginalized existence? Zero. Goddamn right. And this is why. And we so need then D you're stuck I. alone. Yeah. This is why we yeah. need D and yeah. I to exist because otherwise you're stuck alone trying to figure out how to navigate it. How do you put the right words around it? How, and in those moments, you're really risking your life. You're risking your job. You're risking your livelihood. How do you pay your bills yeah. if in this moment you've set you're stepped up to say? Perfect example: a client asked us about uh, running a Hispanic market campaign for lotion, and I said. I think you're actually marketing to the wrong Hispanic mom. And they were like, what do you mean? And then we taught this brand, over a hundred year old brand. We all know this brand. We taught this brand what Afro-Latinas were. They'd never heard Mm -hmm. of Afro-Latinos. Huh? Yeah. Okay, fine. We then, like US Census, one in four Latinos in this country identifies as Afro-Latino. Huh? Didn't, what do y'all? 
Open eyes, please. Open ears. Listen, pay attention. What? The U.S. Census can easily tell you. How is it that I'm the first person who told you this? Right? It's like those sorts of things happen. But in that moment, if I didn't know that I could go to the U.S. Census, that I could rely on literally uscensus.gov to tell the story, there was nobody who could help me figure out how to put the right words forward, even though... It's right. I am factually correct. They are marketing to the wrong Hispanic mom mm-hmm. to buy more lotion. But how do I tell that story when they don't know what Afro-Latino means? They don't know that one in four Ameri- one in four Latinos in this country is. A- they don't know these things. And so they don't know that what, everything that's on the front of their lotion brand, if they just keep putting the wrong woman in the ad, they're never going to do mm-hmm. well. They are having a like, it's a simple fix, but. Well, but then they go to like, well, like Latinos don't like our products. Precisely. But Instead like, of, no, no, you're just you're not marketing the wrong right. Latino. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, no, that's not actually. Because like, I can't tell you, you know, being in the beauty industry, how many conversations I've had with people where they're like, oh, but like the cost of serving an African-American community is too high. And I'm like, nah, like that is. Absolutely false. Right. Absolutely false. Listen, okay. I actually had this conversation with my trainer the other day. I'm bougie. I have a personal (laughs) trainer. Yes. So I was having this conversation with my trainer and he, I was saying like, it is wild to me that in 2023, we still needed a Taraji P. Henson to walk into a room to explain you're putting your shampoo and conditioner in the wrong types of bottles. Mm -hmm. If you just created bottles with applicator tips, more black women would buy your product. It's 2023. Mm -hmm. Are you stupid or is you dumb? How do you not know that black women are wearing protective hairstyles Mm -hmm. and that we need a product that's going to get under the hair and that your thick, thick serum of a shampoo is not going to get into the scalp. Or be too hard to rinse out. If it does get there. And if it does get there, you're going to have to stand under the shower for literally 35 <laughs> minutes to rinse it out. Yeah. How do you not know that? Nowhere in your company is there a woman of color who is either empowered enough to speak up and be like, this makes no sense. Or they're just not present at all, which means throughout the entire like beauty product creation, like product development, R&D uh, and like marketing. Where are your black women? Yeah. Where are they? They don't exist. That means historically within an entire industry, we just have not been hired. Mm -hmm. In 2023, this, the year of this Lord's, like you're in, that's insane to me, but it happens so regularly across so many industries. People are just legitimately boxed out Mm -hmm. and, but there's money to be made. Now applicator tips are coming out. Everybody's trying to put an applicator tip on the, because Taraji made it possible for me to wash my hair after the gym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like ground earth shattering, groundbreaking. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. It's so obvious. Tracy Ellis Ross had to like fight to make the eye roll though. Blow dryer. <laughs> totally. Get out of here. You just rolled your eyes. And I think I rolled my eyes at one point earlier. And I was like, it is a perpetual eye roll situation. Like, How is it? Thing. How are you surviving as a business having yeah. never, ever? But also like, how much money are you leaving on the table? This is the yeah. other. I'm just like, 
Diversity, equity, inclusion. Yes, we can talk about all the touchy-feely. We can talk about all the like, and then it makes it possible for everyone to have their men and that makes the work better and it makes everything richer. We can talk about it in a touchy-feely way or we can talk brass, tax, spreadsheet, bottom fucking line. And you know what that is? It's going to make you money, honey. <laughs> How much money is Taraji making having put three little applicator tips on the all top of the your same-ass, bougie-ass, black, like whack-ass lotion? Your whack ass shampoo, your whack ass conditioner. Like it doesn't matter. Put it in the th- we. Yeah, it's easy. Nobody was willing to make a blow dryer where the attachment didn't come off and hit me in the head until Tracy Ellis Ross. Are you jokes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real. Literally, my forty years of existence being hit in the head by the stupid blow dryer comb. <laughs> but I needed or like dropping off and rolling and rolling the, away. Yeah. And, having to do two attachments at once. I needed the what like most Emmy nominated black actress in the history of yeah. Emmy nominated black actresses to say to somebody in a room, do you know that the blow dryer attachments hit black women in the head all the time? Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> but but yes, no, let's add a B to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let's add belonging. Are you jokes? <laughs> Belonging, we didn't like, yes, okay, let's get to belonging, but can we just even be served? Yeah, period, right? Eat it, <laughs> trash, trash, <laughs> get them out of here. Uh, it's so fun, it's like not funny, but it's like you gotta just be like, like yeah. you gotta laugh because it's just like this makes no sense, like uh, it, it can't be accidental. It's also why I love the fact that, like, the phrase like historically excluded has been like brought more to the forefront Mm -hmm. because that is it. It's so exclusionary Mm -hmm. that it can't be an accident. Yeah. How? You can't tell me you didn't know. Mm -hmm. That can't be it because if every black girl knows, if you watch every natural hair tutorial on YouTube and every black girl is holding the blow, where do black girls hold the blow dryer, Tala? Do they hold it by the handle? No, No, they hold it by the nozzle. And how many blow dryers make the nozzle cool and don't heat up? None. Yeah. Only Tracy. Every blow dryer company makes it so that the nozzle stays hot. So a black girl's got to go a little bit on this and then flip because your hand's burning. And then flip because your hand's burning. Yeah. It has nothing to do with anything other than this This product does not function for me in yeah. any way. Yep. In 20 and 23? Mm-hmm. After COVID? In this economy? In this economy? <laughs> not for me. Not for me. It no, really makes true. no sense. It well, I think be. like, and that's it. It just, it's such a. I love the way that you speak to it because I think it's just like, duh. Like it's it very is obvious. It's so very duh. Ob- it is so. It's very duh. It is DEI is very <laughs> duh. But the only people who have light bulb moments around DEI are people whose society allows to walk around ignorant. Mm. It's a very small percentage of people. It really is. Like, if we look at America as a whole, America is a significant immigrant population, population, right? Like, what is American food? It's all immigrant food. What is American culture? Half of it's immigrant culture, the other half of it's Black American culture, and Black American culture is rooted in Black ethnics, right? right? There's all these things that have, like, my point being, 
It's very duh. There is a small population in America that is allowed to walk around ignorant of reality and the rest of us are very aware. So the fact that like somehow magically products don't get made, services aren't right. Like even something as small as like, okay, so I've been having this conversation with people. This is the first time I'm saying it publicly. Okay. It's something as small as- You heard it here first. (laughs) As small as, but as important as- Cash App. Okay, I do not know anybody at Cash App. I don't know them people. I don't know they, I didn't work for them, but I admire their brand so much. Cash App did something that I think is incredible that has actually, is the reason why your parents all use Zelle. It's the reason why everybody is like super into Zelle. It's because Zelle just basically took what Cash App did. But Cash App was created. So if we go back, just real one step back is Venmo, right? Venmo, when you open up Venmo, there's this like timeline feed of like, who's paid who for what? People of color, two people of color, that's called putting your business on front street. And that's the exact opposite of what we are raised to Mine's always marked private. Every person of color I know, their Venmo is private because it doesn't matter if I'm buying... 1,000 pounds of illegal drugs or 1,000 pounds of Sour Patch Kids. It doesn't, it's nobody's business. I cannot put my business on front street. I can't let these people know what's in my wallet. I can't let them know what I'm spending my money on. And I can't let them know when I'm spending my money. Are you crazy? Also, side note, these are the moments when I realize, like, I am so black. Like, girl. Girl. Because <laughs> it's like these inherent things that I'm like. Oh, shit, I did that. Yeah, I, did like, that. that is, I totally do that. Forget being raised in Washington. It don't matter. It came with like, like it's like in my blood that's right and like there's this like so like none of us were comfortable with venmo cash app first of all did away the other thing that cash app did was you did not have to have a bank account Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden undocumented americans had an ability to make money and cash it all out to a gift card and you never had to deal with a bank Mm -hmm. and uh the other thing that was really dope was like it was made basically for like you don't have to track what's being what's being happened and you also don't have to put your full government name. Mm-hmm. You can have any name you want on Cash App. Like I could be Sparkly Diamond Legs and you got to pay Sparkly Diamond Legs. And you are. And I am. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. <laughs> um, I've certainly gone to events where like a very nice lady did a very nice burlesque dance and then I Cash Apped her for a t-shirt. <laughs> there were no t-shirts at the event. That's what I put in the note. <laughs> Like, you understand? Like, I think, like, Cash App created a way, they they uh, added a layer of privacy mm-hmm. and removed a layer of personalization that actually made it so that people of color were willing to trust this app over Venmo, over PayPal, because they were way too connected to a government bank FDIC mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And that made it risky. It made it risky for people of color who didn't believe, who don't believe in like putting their business in front on front street in that way or like letting other people into their money business. It made it risky for those who were undocumented and it made it risky for people who were in what I call secondary economy. Um, And by focusing on the very people that no other banking institution was focusing on, Mm -hmm. look at how big Cash App has gotten. 
It used to be the running joke, like when you're out, when I was out with dinner with my white friends, it was Venmo. When you're out with dinner with your black friends, you better have Cash App or mm-hmm. Cash. Mm-hmm. Cash App or actual cash. Those are your <laughs> options. Venmo. Black people were like, I don't got that. Mm-mm. Venmo. Mm-mm. No, they in your business. But like, also, I just want to point this out because I actually, I mean, obviously we know, we both, I know, interact with like all like races, all genders, all walks of life, lifestyles, whatever. And for me, so often, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, like I always wondered why black people always use Cash App, like ask a question. Ask the question. Google, like Google it because that's where you start to realize, like we want to make DEI like this kind of like otherness type conversation. But it's like, if you genuinely just have a curiosity about the world around, or not even a curiosity, a care. About the world, like about the world around you, you'll start to notice these sort of patterns. So you'll notice like, well, what's up with like Air Force Ones? What's up with the Jordan? Like, what's up with this? Like, why the panda? Like, you know, the so it's like literally just get on Google, start asking questions about culture. And like that, that sort of questioning creates this level of proximity that then starts to eliminate a lot of the problems that we have culturally. It literally makes the world smaller. Yes. The world, like for people who feel like the world is so big and other cultures and other people are so far away from them, it's very clear that you live a life where you don't actually inquire about other people. <laughs> because if you inquired about other people's experiences, you would see how yeah. the same they are, right? Like totally. you and I know this. I think everybody who has ever met me knows, but like I live for a K-drama. I love me some K-pop. <laughs> like what does a first generation Guyanese American have anything in common with a South Korean? Nothing. But when you watch a K drama, I'm I like, say maybe, oh, like rice. My grandparents like, are just like, yes. I'm like, my grandparents are just like these grandparents. Yeah. My mom said exactly that to me. Uh-huh. My parents treat me that way. Like you see all of these similarities. And it, like if you just inquire about other people, yeah. you will find that the world is so small. Yeah. So small. Well, and I think that's what's so interesting about this. I, I want to get away from D and I, but I it's such an interesting conversation with you. Like, um, the other thing about that 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 mm-hmm. I look at is like people try to make it non-marginalized people try to make the D and I conversation about separation. Yeah. And truly, it's like you're saying, if you have a if you have a curiosity or even just a care about people, then that's where it actually becomes this, it truly becomes inclusion. That's right. And so I think that's the, that's the question, like for the people that I would say who are like, well, you know, D and I are like, I want to be an ally, but I'm not sure how to start. It's like, start there. Start, start by, by wanting to ca- be an ally. Yeah. Like start by actually caring. Not just saying you want to be an ally. Yeah. Start by actually wanting to be an ally. Yeah. Because let me tell you something. If you want to speak Spanish, you don't just sit around wanting to speak Spanish, yeah. do you? Totally. If you want to be a bodybuilder, you don't just sit around wanting to be a bodybuilder, yeah. do you? Yeah. Why in the fresh fuck do people think <laughs> that you just sit around wanting to be an ally? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cues? Mm. Cue me? Yeah. What world? What world? Be smart. Be totally. fucking for real. To well, quote Gen Z. Yeah, right? Be fucking for real. For real. And that's the thing too, though, is like, and I, again, I feel like this is like, a this is a duh for both of us, but I think this is specifically, I think, to... I would say like a lot of white people that have the white privilege is like, you've got to understand that like your privilege is a currency. 
And so when you're willing to actually acknowledge that it is the, like, it's not the, like, I want to be an ally. It's like, you're actually doing the work. And, and one of the ways to do the work, you don't have to go and march in the streets, go do that, please. Like write to your local government officials and what global government officials, whatever, but also like just show up, like show up and have, and care. I have a platform and I have a, camera in front of me and a microphone in front of me. And I would be remiss not to say this. If you right now are sitting in your home and you're saying to yourself, I want to be an ally. I don't know what to do. Maybe I should like read these books. Maybe I should read that Michelle Alexander book. What you should actually do is turn to your closest black, brown, or Asian colleague and mentor them. Mm-hmm. That's what the fuck you should be doing. That's the work. The work of being an ally is literally turning to the people within your space and building them up. Find a marginalized person within your space. Look, they might not live in your house. They might not live in your neighborhood. You may have actually built a life that isolates you from marginalized people. That's not a shame. Do what you got to do. Live where you want to live. Have the life you want to have. But your work, there's no way you work at a 100% non-marginalized company. There's Mm -hmm. no way you work at a company with no women. Mm -hmm. There's no way you work at a company with no gays. There's no way you work at a company with no people who like have physical disabilities. You absolutely have the opportunity to be an active ally to someone. You are, if you are not, this is your, let this be your moment. Let this be the sign. Mm. Go turn to your nearest colleague and and like ask them, how do we get you promoted? What's the next Mm -hmm. thing you want to do? Don't ask them, can I help you? Mm -hmm. That's nonsense. Would you respond to that? If somebody came up to you and said, can I help you with anything? Would you respond well to that? No. Ask them, what's the next thing you want to do at this company? What's the next thing you want to do in your career? And then provide them with resources to get there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like going back to the very beginning of this conversation Mm -hmm. where you're like, people aren't tired of DE and either just afraid of it. And and not like, I mean, and I do want to acknowledge that you know, there are people that get offended or like, you know, there is a chance that people are going to be like, well, why? Like, why are you asking me? But it is so slim. I'll tell you right now. It is so slim. And like the gratitude of someone being like, hey, you know what? I have your back. Like, how can I, like, what can I do to contribute to you? But Or also even like, if you really want to level up, instead of like, what can I do? It's like, how can I help you achieve X, Y, and Z? I see that you have this particular skill set, or I feel like you're really great in this area. Like what else can we do? How can we like exponentialize that? How can we give you a bigger platform? Like there are ways for you to actually support, even if you feel like you're not in a senior position, which is like, that's a whole other conversation, but like your, again, like your whiteness is a currency, your privilege, even if you're not like not white, like there are still, there's privilege that exists. Like it's a currency. So use it, like spend it. Because you're not right. going to spend it. You don't need it. Do you know how <laughs> like, I became a strategist? Tell me. A uh, Latin man who uh, had lots and lots, uh, who was like, very, like, um, how do I put it? Uh, my friend Art uh, had lots of like affluent white friends. He grew up in Santa Barbara. And uh, he also like, was already working in marketing as a strategist and like doing very well here in LA when I was in law school. And we were out to dinner one time, we we're like chatting. And this is after knowing Art for a few years. And he turned to me and was like, I know you're a lawyer, but like, can I just, I think you'd be an amazing strategist. I think you bring really interesting perspective to like a lot of conversations and topics that people sort of feel 
um, are like already established. Like you only look at this thing this one way. He's like, but every time we talk about stuff that seems really established, like you actually come at it from a different perspective. And I think that's so valuable. Mm -hmm. He said that to me over dinner, like over like sausage, you know what I mean? Like a very curry verse, like literally <laughs> over curry verse. And even at the time I was like, I, I'm not sure I know what that means. Like, I should be a strategist. What's a strategist? Like, I didn't know any, but like just him planting that seed, you, understanding that he had a type of privilege. He had male privilege that made it so that he bumped shoulder or rubbed shoulders with these types of men. And they all saw like, you know, everybody was building a network for each other and they got in. He was mm -hmm. in rooms that he knew I could never get into. And rather yeah. than he didn't have at the time the power to pull me into those rooms. And so what he did was he brought that room to me. Mm -hmm. I was at Currywurst and he was at Currywurst and he all of a sudden brought this thing to yeah. me. Actually, what you do is this. Mm -hmm. What you're naturally good at is this thing and it has a name and it has mm -hmm. a job and it does this thing. Yeah. And in knowing that information, I was able to then slowly but surely pursue an opportunity and strategy. And now I'm yeah. in charge. So like, I think what you're saying is right. It's like any type of privilege. It is not always just yeah. like white folks with white privilege. Privilege exists. Like yeah. I am a black person with, I mean, I wasn't born into financial privilege. I have worked very hard and now I have a teeny <laughs> tiny bit of financial privilege. Mm -hmm. And as a black person with financial privilege, I truly think it is my responsibility to shout from the rooftops mm -hmm. how I make money. Yeah. Here's how I did it. Here's who I talked, here's what I said, here's what I did. Like, mm -hmm. it is my responsibility to say to other yeah. marginalized people, like, here's how I got yeah. to this position. Totally. Yeah. Think, and I mean, that's called not gatekeeping. That's right. <laughs> in case you ever heard. In <laughs> communities of color, we say we lift as we rise. Yeah. However, it's called not gatekeeping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, and that's what's interesting too, like, even hearing you talking about that story with art, like, it's so interesting to me how, like, with non-marginalized communities, that's called networking. Yeah. But, like, non-marginalized communities will look at marginalized communities and say that it's exclusion. It, they'll say that it's, they'll call it nepotism so much yes, faster. Right? Like, it's so wild to me. And and so I think that's- Or again, favoritism. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and I love that thing about, like, it's, it's, we lift as we rise. Like, that's, it's just what, it's what we do. And- there's, and also it just sucks to be the only one. Yeah. It sucks so much to be the only <laughs> totally. one. And as a person who has consistently throughout her life been the only one, it is a horrible, no good, very bad, disheartening experience. No matter how many smiles you put on, no matter how much work you've been able to do, no matter how much, how much impact you've been able to make, how much change you've been able to make, it feels horrible at the end of the day yeah. to be the only one. Totally. Yeah. And there's, I mean, even for me, like, you know, working through and navigating my life in the beauty industry, it's like, I have a level of power and I would say respect and like position and still like in the back of my mind is constantly mm -hmm. this conversation of like, is what I'm saying actually landing is what I'm like, are people hearing what I'm saying or, and, but also with that knowing that everything that I say is being like rung through this filter. Picked apart yeah. and and that it's always like it's never gonna fully land as like paula the professional who has 15 years of experience and a different perspective it's like paula the woman of color who like is, is begging for other people of color 
I swear to God, <laughs> I know, I know you don't want me to say the word begging. I know you don't. I don't want to say, but I promise you yeah. that is what they see. Yeah. Every time it's what they see, it's what yeah. they hear. They perceive it as begging mm-hmm. for other people. And the reality is, is like, I'm not begging. I'm literally standing up here telling you that what you just said, what you're doing and what you're thinking is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm consistently saying over and over again, that's wrong. Yeah. But what it comes across as what people hear and what I get repeated back to me or said back to me is begging. Well, and I think too, like pleading for- on behalf of totally. When did you hear me plead? <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. no, no. I proposed a strategy. Yeah. When did you hear me plead? Like it literally, I am being a professional. I am using professional language. You are being a professional. You are you. And it gets repeated back to you as bullshit fucking things like pleading, begging, uh, asking on behalf of advocating for. No, my guy, I'm not advocating for. <laughs> I literally put forward a business proposal that is correct and accurate. Yeah. And just makes you look better, by the way. But like the other thing too, that's I think really interesting is this thing about like you talked, you mentioned advocating for, I think what's really interesting is like so many of these conversations that I have, what I also have kind of replaying in the back of my mind is like this, this thing about, it's not just about having a like sliver of DE and I in your company. It's like prioritize it. And I think that's, I think what's really confronting for people like us when we're like, listen, like, it's not just enough to be like, yeah, we're like looking into it. It's like, no, it needs to be a priority. Yeah. And that, I think, you know, nobody likes to be told what anything I don't like to be told, but it's like on top of that, you're like, no, this actually needs to be a priority. But that's the thing is in order to to really create any long-term lasting change, like it has to be prioritized on a regular basis. And I, that's why I love so much about what you said with like, you know, DE&I isn't just a race thing. We make it a race thing, but it's like important to remind people that it's actually way bigger than that. And it needs to continue to be prioritized as way bigger than that. Agree. And also protect black people. Hallelujah. <laughs> One more time for the people in the back. Protect black people. <laughs> but like, um, I, okay, I want to shift gears because this is one of the things we just had a conversation recently and I was like, please like school the world. But um, shifting gears from like DE&I and into like brand conversations. Cause I think one of the things you're really brilliant at is like looking at a brand and figuring out like kind of the niche, like who can you market to? Like, what is a brand? How should it look? Like just making it relatable and real, which um, I think is something also uniquely you for a multitude of reasons. And just cause you're brilliant. I love you. But um Okay, I want to just like dial it way, way, way back. So like I pretend like I know nothing or people listening know nothing about branding. And I even, for example, is like a solopreneur. Like, yes, I work with companies and I, you know, I have multiple businesses that make me money, by the way. Um, but like as a solo entrepreneur, like I like, do I have a brand? Like, what is a brand? Why is a brand valuable? Mm. Like, how do I communicate that brand? Is it like fonts and colors or is it something bigger than that? So I know I'm like lobbing a big old ball over to you, but like, let's maybe start just kind of pulling that apart. Because I think there's a lot of confusion for people in the world. And and we have more entrepreneurs now than we ever have. Yes. And so I think this conversation about like brand and branding is really actually relevant. Um, so let's start there. Like, what is a brand? Is a brand important? But let's speak to it like specifically with like entrepreneurs. Yeah. 
especially for entrepreneurs, I think like to your point, you're right. There are way more entrepreneurs now than there ever have been. And I think the advent of social media has made yeah, that possible, right? Sure. The advent of social media and the creation of, um, uh, uh, you know, oper- uh, like, um, Gosh, what are the what are they called? Like turnkey websites, mm-hmm. right? So you can log on to a Squarespace, you can log on to a WordPress, a Wix, and they have like these turnkey sites that you can make. So you can build literally a website for yourself, and you can create a advertising channel for yourself on social media in the comfort of your home. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, that was not possible, right? Ten years ago, that's not what. That's not how you built a brand. But right now, every person can be a brand if they so choose to be a brand. The difference between sort of um, having a social media presence and sort of like randomly telling stories on social and being a brand is that uh, if you are a person, particularly if you are a person, a solo entrepreneur, your brand has to have a purpose. As a person, I don't have to have a purpose when I get on the internet. I don't have to have a purpose on my social media. I don't even have to have a purpose on my personal blog. Mm -hmm. I can just do whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter. But if I am a brand, if I am building a brand, a brand has to have purpose and a consistent story. And therefore, like, think about... the folks who like you see one cool thing that they did on the internet or something interesting or a funny post that they make and then you go to their page. If that person, if you can't look at their page, click on a few of the things that they've posted and get a general idea for who they are. Like if you can't put three words together about what this person is, you never <laughs> click follow. Excuse me. Oh, bless you. Thank you. You will never follow them mm-hmm. because that's just some random kid who made one funny thing. And so you just don't trust that this is something worth following that you're going to see consistent, like great content from. But if you get, you land on someone's page or you land on someone's website and there's just been a consistency of messaging, maybe the content styles are different. Maybe the colors that you've used are different. Maybe the types of stories you've told are different, but you've told, you have one type of messaging. Your brand purpose has come through and is very clear. So for example, when we talked about Cash App, I don't know Cash App, I have no idea. I don't know any of those people. I've never talked to them. But like, it is so clear when you use their product, how they have designed it differently from all the other fintech products. It's so, it's glaringly obvious. So you can actually just figure also, out like, oh, not uh, you dropping something like fintech. I'm sorry. I could not let that go by. Get, get real. Look. Okay. I mean, I Renee am a digital Miller, innovation professional. Esquire. Oh, Esquire. Yeah, that Esquire is <laughs> never going away. I paid so much damn money for it. Y'all going to see it on LinkedIn. You're going to see it on Instagram. You're going to see it in my um, email signature. I'm never getting rid of it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry. Going back to Cash Up. You don't know any of these people. Right. That like a brand with a clear purpose, that purpose is going to come through. Cash mm-hmm. Up now has a record company. They have a clothing line. They do. Uh, they show up at... Um, uh, you know, um, excuse me, tech conferences. Like they are all over the place. They're dipping and dabbing, but their purpose is very clear, which is they're mm-hmm. serving communities no no other fintech company is thinking of. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the iteration of how mm-hmm. they're doing it, that's what they're doing. Yeah. And that comes through very clearly. And I think that is sort of what people need to think about as you're building your own brand. What you need to think about is what is your brand purpose? Now, a lot of y'all, I'ma just say this, are full of shit. So <laughs> when someone like my like when a professional asks you, what's your brand purpose? You tell what you think 
is a polished story about yourself or your brand. So you say things like, I'm just trying to reach people with my, uh, I don't know, with my hip hop uh, chips. <laughs> I'm trying to reach a, br- like, you know. Not, not you call it out rap snacks. I know. Or like, <laughs> like rap snacks or even like, uh, what are those, like um, the hand tufted, excuse me, rugs of like, you know, like different oh, yeah, artists yeah, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm just trying to give people who never see themselves reflected in their fun Mm -hmm. an opportunity to see themselves reflected in their fun. Is that why you're doing it? Is that why you made wrap snacks? That's not why you made wrap snacks. Mm -hmm. Is that why you're tufting a custom carpet of the Notorious B.I.G.? That's not why you're doing it. Tell me why you're doing it, right? When you can have an honest conversation or literally honestly write down why you're doing it. And sometimes it really is like, because bills are due. Because this is all I'm good at. Because my mom thinks this is impressive and I want to impress my mom. Those are real things that you can start to build around. Because what you really need to do is, like, those are what I would call, like, the initial building blocks. So just pull out the words that represent your brand, what you're actually trying to do, what you really are putting into the world. And then from there, you want to lift up. And you just want to start bucketing those words. So you want to have like a word library of maybe like 30 to 50 words that re- that represent what you're trying to do with this brand. And then you want to bucket those words. These 10 words go together. These five words go together. These four words go together. Bucket those words. And then above those, you're going to put some sort of phrase. These words are about my internal motivation. These words are about a consumer brand story. These words are about the way I want consumers to feel when they engage with my brand, right? You want to put those ideas or those words under um, an umbrella. And now what we've got, once we get those umbrella words, what we've actually got are sort of like um, directional uh, territories for your brand. And what those initial words become are uh, sort of like um, tactics or um, intentions, right? So you've got like how you're driving the brand or like what the brand is. And then you've got like intentions underneath it, underneath it or tactics that you can use to get yourself to this consumer brand story or get yourself to here's how the consumers will feel if we're able to do all of these things. So what you want to do is just start with what you know, start with the nitty gritty of what you know, and then build a story up from there until you get to what the North star of your brand would be. North star is ultimately the two sentence story of what your brand is. And that is what I would call a North star, but it's also what some people call an elevator pitch. The elevator pitch isn't necessarily all of the things that you want your brand to do. It's just the best, clearest way to express your brand purpose. But when you know the best, clearest way to express your brand purpose and you know what the tactics are, what the individual tactics can be to get you there, this is when you've built a brand with clear purpose. Because you can go out and shoot a video on Hollywood Boulevard. You can go out and uh, fly a couple people to Nepal and do a ropes course. You You can literally do anything, film a podcast, write a medium, have a million different iterations of what your brand is and how your brand gets into the world, but you have got a way to consistently message your brand purpose. That makes sense. I feel like that might be abstract, but no, it's so good. Okay. Because well, even when you say that, because I was like, and I'll I mean I'll speak to this because we have a lot of conversations about branding. And I remember years ago being like, should I change my Instagram name? Like, because I don't want to just talk about this. Like you know, and like really having these conversations. And I think for me, like a huge 
like when you're like, what's your brand purpose? I'm like, I don't even know how to answer that. Like, I couldn't even tell you, but then you explain it. I'm like, oh, like, okay. Like my thing is, my thing is definitely like creating a life that you don't need a vacation from, which is like huge. Thank you. I'm so glad you like it. But then also too, I think like another like kind of messaging there is like that, like the struggle is real, but it doesn't have to be forever. Like, Mm. and I think that's, that's where, and even he, so yes, it was very, cause I was like, oh, well then I think I need to share more about like, where I came from, like, so that people can see, like, you know, my life looks very bright and happy. And it is. It's very joyful. I have a lot of joy in my life. I have more money than I've ever had. I have beautiful people in my life, beautiful relationships, like, you know, and also it was not always that way. And I think, so it's actually really cool to hear you speak about that because I was like, oh, that immediately created, like, this clarity where I was like, oh, I could speak. I need to speak to this part of the messaging Mm. a little bit more. So well done. I'm glad. I'm glad. Because listen, if, that felt if, I, to you, if I could get it, anybody could get it. Ah, that makes me so happy. Like, I try, I'm trying to like, it can be so, um, it can feel like a black box, right? Like yeah. the idea of like building a brand, it just can feel very much like what the hell happens, what is in there. But it really is just a, pro- a very slow process of being patient with yourself and asking yourself the why and then forcing yourself to write down Well, the answer. other thing too that I will say is like, cause I've, I've bought all the like brand marketing, YouTube podcasts, like how to launch your blah, blah, blah. But to be honest, it's like, I am not represented in most of the people that are facilitating those conversations. Yeah. So like. They're telling you dumb shit, like how to make an LLC. That's so, <laughs> yeah. that's so, it's like. That's 35 or, steps ahead. Or like, how I don't need to create your... an LLC. I need to figure out what the fuck I'm making and yeah, why am I like, making it and why would people want to buy it? Totally. And I think that- Having like, an LLC is, that's yeah. only useful if somebody's going to pay you for it. Boo-boo. Most of the solopreneurs so on that. the internet are struggling to get people to pay them for the thing. They don't need an LLC. Yeah. Yeah. They need a clear brand message. Hi. And I think, um, so just like side note. Um, as your life and spiritual coach that I've now nominated myself as in this 10 seconds. I'm into that. <laughs> like, I think you're, um, you need to look into that because you engaging with solopreneurs to get them clear on their brand purpose, like uh, magic. Yeah. That like, would be pretty magic. I'm kind of good at it. You're I'm kind of good at it. I don't know. I don't know. I like know stuff about stuff. I've maybe built like a 15 year career around it. Yeah, I mean, the money might not be as good as, like, a full-on agency in New York City with, like, all those brands, but, like, still, I feel like you I could, think I can, I feel yeah. like you could do all right. I could do all right. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I love that. So, what, um, like, what's next? Like, what are you... I know, that's such a good question. To be honest with you, I feel like what's next is... Um, building a life that I don't need to take a vacation from, Mm -hmm. right? Like I've worked really hard in brand strategy, particularly like digital brand strategy and digital innovation strategy to uh, make a name for myself and make a career for myself. Mm -hmm. And like now I think it's about building a life that I don't take vacation from, Mm -hmm. that I just feel energized by Mm -hmm. my clients, energized by uh, the innovations that I'm working on. Um, Which is like really just, I mean, not just to dilute it, but it's, it is that thing of, you just keep creating. Yeah. And it just keeps keep elevating going. the next level, you know, and, and it's like not necessarily that it's a different job. It's that you start to approach it differently. Or oh like the my time, God. Exactly. The time it. commitment is different. Exactly. It looks it. like, um, which I a new approach to my work that just sort of like helps me get new again, yeah. I think is like, 
yeah. work right now. We talked about this briefly, like not in the podcast, but just in life about this like need to keep going, keep mm-hmm. moving forward. That mm-hmm. like uh, Paula and I have known each other for a very long time. And we talked about like very briefly sort of where our beginnings were. But like mm-hmm. I drove a 94 Civic with no air conditioning um Paula's car like actively would smell like gas when you like sat at a red light for too long so you'd have to like roll the windows down otherwise it was like (laughs) you know what I mean um we slept in the same bed together um like when I say we came from the mud we came from the mud friends and uh the reality is there was nothing magical that either one of us did there was nothing Like we didn't have some overnight transformation where we found a new way to look at the world or we found a new way to engage with the work. The reality was we just kept putting one foot in front of the other. We kept being willing to fail at a thing and come back the next day. And like when people talk to me or when I talk to folks about career and they ask me about my career, particularly as a person who has switched careers and switched career tracks, like your career is not necessarily the thing you're good at. Your career is not necessarily the thing you're passionate about. Your career is the thing you're willing to look stupid at on Monday and come back and still do it again on Tuesday. (laughs) I'm good at lots of things. I am not willing to look stupid at very many things, Mm -hmm. but I was willing to look stupid at marketing. I'm still willing to look stupid at marketing. That's fine. I'll come back the next day and do it again. Like, and I think that like, that's, that's the real power. Like that is where your career is. You're willing to fail and keep going. That's your career path. And like, I think that like, that's also just true of life. Life doesn't get better because you magically become better. Life gets better because you just keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. You just keep going and things Mm -hmm. will eventually be different. Mm -hmm. And like, Really, that's a conversation about hope. That's a conversation about how do you not lose hope? Yeah. How do you, even in moments where you are not feeling hopeful, continue mm-hmm. to put one foot in front of the other? That's a different conversation. Yeah. We can certainly have that. But I think uh, it's been so powerful just in being here and seeing you and talking to you about like where we came from to where we both are now you and how significantly <laughs> different it is. But yeah. the reality was neither one of us did things significantly differently. We just yeah. kept going yeah and i think like it's interesting because people try to make that like a spiritual conversation and i think both of us having so much church history as well it's like it's not like it's independent of god universe whatever i think a lot of times that gives people a sense of hope or it's easier for them to believe that there's like a brighter future but it's like it just is I don't know what it, it's not physics. It's, I don't, I don't know. But it's like the thing where it's like, if you just keep putting one foot in front of another, like you're going to get somewhere, like you're going to be somewhere different. And like, even if you try that same thing in a new environment, like it might work differently than it did the time before. Precisely. And I think that's like, you know, you talked about doing something different in the same environment, but I think the other side of that is true. Like doing if you're willing thing in a new to keep trying it, like if you really believe in what it is that you're doing, and maybe it's maybe it's not for this audience, but you shift gears and you start talking to these people or you shift gears and start talking about these other people, like eventually it will land and you have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that's where like so often a lot of our suffering comes from, like wanting to figure out the end before we even get there. But it's like or how fast you want to get totally. to the end and well, how slow life really is. Totally. And it's funny because I I read this like months and months ago, or maybe it's, it was even years ago that like. 
basically about how the universe or like God isn't pressed about a timeline. Like we're, we're stressed about a timeline, but like that thing about if you're just putting one foot in front of the other, sometimes the one foot in front of the other is faster than others, but sometimes it's not like, but our stress and, and the, the pressing of a timeline just causes suffering. Yeah. Whereas like, if you're just like, okay, it's gonna, it will work out. Like it just works out. And if it doesn't work out, like you're not done, keep stepping, keep going. Like, and that I think is such a, and I feel like you don't know it until you go through it. Yeah. Like you don't know until you've, you've like logged the hours and gotten them steps in. Sometimes you don't even realize <laughs> how many steps forward you've taken yeah. until yeah. you look, look back. back. Like, yeah. holy, look at where I am. How For did sure. I? Totally. And I think that's where like, it's cool to, I was even talking to, um, to my sister actually, um, this morning. And I just was like, listen, like, when I first moved, I told, I literally told the story. Like when I first moved to Los Angeles, I slept in the same bed as Renee because I couldn't afford rent. I didn't have a place to stay. I was just waiting out a room to be available. Like, and then from there I moved into a, a studio, a teeny little studio apartment with like roaches and everything in Hollywood. And I lived there for a little while. I got married. I got divorced. Then I moved into a two bedroom, two bathroom hotel, or like apartment in Koreatown, which like I was living at that point. Hi. Living. You had achieved. Right. Right? We and were so, like, did you know Paula got a two-bedroom? <laughs> two bathrooms, too. Meanwhile, I was living in a studio where I had to climb a loft bed to bed. I was literally <laughs> I in a bunk bed until I was 38 years old. <laughs> so, like, okay. But I love then that it's apartment. like, from there, it's like, and now I have a beautiful house in Los Angeles that I love so much. And it's spacious. And it's like, you know, and it again, but this, like, still isn't the end for me. Like, I'm okay. What's next? Like, what else, like, what else can I create? Like, what, what's my next thing? Not from the gratitude of where I've been. Like, I'm grateful for where I've been. I'm grateful for where I'm at and I'm going to keep going. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the thing is like, we also, we, we stress about the timeline and we try to like predict the, the end goal or like the end result outcomes. Yeah. And I think it's, it just, it causes so much like pain Yeah, where if you just divorce yourself from the outcome, totally. this is why I say your career is not necessarily the thing you're good at. And it's not necessarily the thing you're passionate about. It's the, it's the thing that you're willing to divorce yourself from the outcome Mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't hurt me to be wrong. Mm -hmm. It doesn't bother me if I'm wrong, but it also doesn't make me feel like, um, it doesn't change anything if I'm also right, right? Like if mm-hmm. I'm right, I'm like, I've been told y'all I was right. I knew I was right. <laughs> it's not like I feel like finally I am respected in the world. No, yeah. like that's not how, like that is too, at least for me, that's like way too close to my identity to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to put my identity through the ringer every single day of my my professional life. I'm not trying to grind myself every single day of my professional mm-hmm. life. I'm trying to like actually just... Build a professional life that's comfortable. Yeah. And I'm here for it. Cheering you on every single step of the way. Like, I am so here for it. Ugh, I love it. I love you. You're brilliant. Like, Thank you. Honestly, there's so, I mean, I'm smart, but like, there are certain people in the world that I'm like, no, she's smart. They smart. And you're one of those people, for sure. I'm and smart I- about the things I'm smart about. I certainly know what I know. <laughs> That's a good way. That's a good way to put it, for sure. Um, okay, so part of the Paul Peralta show is that every guest that comes on um, gets a little special gift for me. And as you know, I love Crocs. Ooh. I am like in my Croc life, my Croc era. I don't care. I always wear them. I don't care. People can make the memes, make the videos. 
talk the shit. I'm still going to wear my Crocs. I became a Crocs babe during the pandemic. Yeah, because they're I amazing. I never owned any, and now I own three pairs. Yeah. Four. It's as it should be. They're yeah. amazing. So I try to choose Crocs, like, that I feel like fit the person. No pressure. But I will tell you, there were a lot. When I went in, I was like, okay, if I... Be curious. For Renee. Like, what Crocs would I get? And... So I found these ones. Do I show the camera that you got me these shoes? Paula got me these shoes. So it's not like she doesn't know what I like. So these are the Crocs also. So I got you these ones. Oh, you got me the ones with the with the four-wheel drive. This is that's the four by four when you put it in sport mode. Okay, okay. But they're like, see, I don't know. I kind of love them. Like I feel like. They were like weird, but also amazing, but like colorful, but like I feel like you're good. Like even with that dress, like you're yeah, gonna make it like, look so good. It's giving Renee. I don't disagree with this. I choice. know, right? I was like, I can't just get you a regular pair of Crocs. Okay, come on. They're so cute. I'm obsessed. I so am I. <laughs> when you catch me in Target. <laughs> Totally. I was like, well, listen, whether, and that's the thing about Crocs shoes. They could be house shoes. Yeah. They could be run into the store shoes. They could be going out to the club shoes, whatever you want. The but club. The club. They look so good. I love them. Thank you. Me too. Thank, Thank you so much for my Crocs. You're welcome. I look so cute. I'm glad. I didn't realize you had three, you had three or four pairs already. Oh, I have like the furry ones. Oh, I um, like that those. I have I some platform get... ones. Okay, yep. Same. I have the flip flop ones. Oh, I have not. And, I haven't worn those ones. Uh, oh, just some re- regular yellows. So regular yellow ones. Just like you know, basic. <laughs> just regular ones. Well, then I'm glad I got you these ones. Yeah, it was. I don't have. I really style. like. Was like. Oh, I don't cute. know about this. Anyway, I love it. Um, thank, thank you for you this so conversation. Much. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. Of course, you're. Of course, it's perfect every time. Also, not me draining every glass. <laughs> I know, same. We're very hydrated on the Paula Pearl. Quite hydrated. (laughs) Anyway, if you like the show, please do all the things. Like, subscribe, share it. Um, Also, something I forgot to talk about that is um, we've been talking about constantly. Speaking of branding, I should have worked this in then. Um, This podcast is sponsored by Vagaro. And um, there's actually a big summit that they do. I feel like you'd be great. Maybe we need to get you on a panel. I feel like I say that to everybody, but I have to be <laughs> for you um, about branding or something. Well, we'll see. We're going to cook that off. We're going to cook it offline. But basically, there's this thing called Iconic 23 in San Diego, September 25th and 26th. Um, and is that right? 26th, 27th? I think it's 25th and 26th. Whoops. Anyway, go to vagaro.com slash pro slash Paula, and you can get all the information that you need about Iconic 23. It's where I met Venus Williams last year. It was amazing. It was definitely amazing. Um, Tap at the coffee, a lot of really cool, inspiring people. They're going to talk about business and just wellness and how you can take your business to the next level. So make sure you check it out. You can get um, all the information you need. Paula Peralta, or sorry, vagaro.com slash pro slash Paula. And you'll get all the information there. So do all the things. Renee, thanks again. Thank you. You're the best. I don't necessarily have a brand to push, but I am single. And so <laughs> hit the DMs. <laughs> Renee, <laughs> what's your Instagram? Renee underscore Ebony. Underscore Renee Ebony. Oh, there you go. Underscore Slide Renee Slide into them DMs. Okay, but legit, even 
if you aren't trying to slide into the DMs, which you're a maniac if you don't, uh, her, <laughs> Renee's stories, I live for your stories. <laughs> I live. The I also, chaos of my Instagram stories. Incredible. It is chaotic. It's incredible. I am having a great time doing yeah, it. Yeah. And also, can I just tell you that I never feel more validated than when there's like a video that like either I saved for myself or I sent to someone else or I sent to you and then you put it in your story. So I was like. Winning. Winning. I right? win. I'm cool. It's official. Dead. S- slaying. Yeah. Come find me on Instagram if just for the stories, but <clears throat> also because I'm cute. You're stunning. You're I'm beautiful. so cute. You're Get into it, you guys. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>